God, we are in awe and so grateful that you see us. You see this community gathered here week by week, Church of the City in Guelph, um, your body on earth, but you also see us uh, personally, individually. You see me in this moment. You know all the things weighing on my heart and mind. And the same is true for everyone here. And we believe that you can cut through all of that. Not that how we're feeling or how we're doing does not matter to you, quite the contrary. And yet you are so wonderful, so awesome, that you can meet us right in the midst of that and still speak a word to us, uh, transform us more into Jesus' likeness. We pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. People uh, make promises to us all the time uh, in various ways, various contexts, various, you know, sort of levels or seriousness of promises, some big, some small. And something that we just, I think, naturally, almost subconsciously do as human beings is we adjust how we receive a promise from someone based on our past experiences or impressions of that person, right? We adjust how seriously we're going to take that. Let me give you a few examples. Last week, Rich uh, Saunders was with us, and he told a story of um, waiting for his uncle to pick him up, an uncle who uh, he later told us was struggling with addiction in some significant ways and failed to come to pick him up to take him to, I think it was a hockey game, And so, as we would all imagine, I'm sure the next time that that situation arose, Rich was a little more cautious, right? A little bit more, um, you know, unsure of how things were going to go, a little bit more wary. Similarly, although maybe not quite as serious, my my two sons take the promise, you know, when we're putting on their jammies or something, they'll say, promise you will not tickle me. They know that they can have no faith in that promise because I just, I can't resist those little giggles, you know? You can't not do it. So they know that that promise doesn't have very much weight to it, sadly. Um, But on the contrary, on January 11th, 2014, I made a promise to Samantha. And I hope that she knows, and I hope that her experience with me since then has told her that that was a solemn vow. That was our wedding day, in case that wasn't clear. Um, (laughs) That was a significant promise that, that, that I made that day. It had weight, and our experience up to, that point, or up to this point from that day has, has sort of backed up that promise. So we learn through experience that various promises have differing weights to them. We probably wish it weren't that way, but that's the reality of life. And I would argue that us, our adjustment to that is really just a part of what the Bible talks about as wisdom. Wisdom. One of uh, my theological textbooks describes wisdom, or defines wisdom this way, the quality of discerning what is true, what is right, and what should be done in different situations. The quality of discerning what is true, what is right, and what should be done in different situations, right? And so this idea of how we respond to promises is in some ways a reflection of, of wisdom, But we also know from the scriptures and hopefully from your own life that that God makes promises too, doesn't he? God makes promises. And so I want us to ask the question, how do we handle those? How do we apply wisdom to the promises that God makes to us? 
After all, the book of Proverbs tells us, every word of God proves true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. So how do we handle God's promises? We're going to consider this theme this morning, and we're going to look at three promises that show up in our text, okay? So with that, let's jump in. We've seen this cycle playing over and over again. It begins with rebellion, chapter 13, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this, the, the cycle, the downward spiral that the people have gotten in has meant that the last few times through this cycle, the, the circling of the drain, I love how Rich described it last week, um, the last few times through the cycle, we haven't even gotten any details on what the rebellion looks like. We're just told the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it continues straight into the consequences of that. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But this is our first opportunity to really understand the Philistines a little bit better. They've popped up a couple times in the book of Judges, but we've not tried to understand them any better. So we'll do that now, because we're going to be talking about them a significant amount over the next couple of weeks. So the Philistines were one of a group of various sea peoples from the Aegean area. So this is that, uh, that area of islands from Greece sort of stretching around to Turkey. So they came south um, across the ocean, some settled in Egypt, and some settled in Canaan. Um, and they came shortly after the Israelites did. So the Philistines came, obviously, from the ocean and then began to push their way east. I'm realizing that I'm going to be doing this backwards from you watching me, but I, I already have a hard enough time with left and right, east and west, so I just got just to go with it, okay? We actually, okay, we've got a map up, great. Uh, so the Philistines pushed in from the coast, whereas the Israelites came from the right side, uh, the Jordan River, and were pushing westward. And this line here, uh, this red line running up through this map, don't worry about all these words in very small font, um, that's where the Israelites and the Philistines were butting up against each other. But the Philistines, over time, sort of coalesce into five cities, and they're the, the five cities there highlighted in yellow, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod on the coast there, and then further inland, Gath and Ekron. Now, Gath and Ekron, as you can see on this map, um, they're a little bit further inland, but on the far right here, this territory of Judah where Jerusalem would eventually be uh, settled, this was a mountainous, pretty hilly area. And obviously on the coast, it's beautiful. Anybody has ever been to, the, the, to Israel and maybe been to the seaside, you know, it's beautiful beaches, all we would expect from the coast. But in between is some rolling hills, some fertile river valleys, and that's exactly where Gath and Ekron are. This fertile area, it's called the Shephelah. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment, okay? But typically, based on the cycle we've seen throughout the book of Judges, there's uh, rebellion, then God allows the people to experience oppression, and then normally we would expect a cry for help from the Israelites. Not necessarily repentance, but at least some sort of cry to God for deliverance. Only we don't get that in this time through the cycle. We don't, we don't get any cry for help. In fact, the story immediately moves to the raising of the deliverer. And that might feel like a minor note in the story of Samson, but I think it has huge implications for the book of Judges as a whole. That the people of Israel, oppression was no longer seeming to register. The consequences of their sin were just coming to be accepted. 
And I think there's a, a, a small note of application for us in our spiritual journeys, friends. For us personally and for anyone whom we're in close spiritual relationship with. The, the note of application is it should sound alarm bells for us, for us. It should be significant whenever the consequences of our sin stop seeming to register or stop seeming to matter or just become sort of an everyday part of life. That's just the way things are. When we see that happening to ourselves or to people whom we are walking closely with, that should sound alarm bells, right? I'm thinking of like the, the man or woman who's struggling with fits of anger, right? And they're just coming to accept that all of their relationships in life are going to be a little bit cold and distant, and that's just the way that life is. No, no, that's a consequence of a way that you're living. This should sound alarm bells for us. It doesn't seem to, sadly, for the people of Israel. We jump right in, and we see God's grace in this, jump right to the raising of a deliverer, despite Israel not even crying out for help. So look at verse 2. There was a man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And here I want us to consider the first of those three promises. You might be saying, I didn't catch a promise in that verse. To understand the promise, we'd have to go back to the book of Joshua, and I think you'll see this passage on the screen. Joshua 23, verses 1 to 5 says this, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it's the Lord your God who fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. God makes this promise to the Israelites that this is their land. It's, it's broken into allotments for each tribe. And they're told to go in and settle. And so, as we know, as we've been studying the book of Judges, this whole book is the story of Israel failing to do so and the consequences that result. And in Judges chapter 1, the Danites are mentioned as one of the specific tribes that failed to settle their inheritance. It says, Judges 1.34, The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So if we put that map back on the screen, here for a second. So again, I do not expect you to be able to read everything, but uh, about in the middle, about halfway up, we see Dan. This was to be the inheritance of Dan, only it was to sort of start in the hill country on the right and go all the way down to the sea. But Dan, we read, failed to settle this inheritance, and so they end up Uh, bunched up into the hill country, butting up right against Judah's inheritance, Judah's territory, looking down on this fertile land, the Shephelah, these fertile river valleys, which was to be their inheritance. And their, their failure was actually so significant that a large portion of the Danites, we're told in Joshua 19, just went elsewhere. They went north and settled a whole different area for themselves, found an area that was a little bit easier to, to settle, to conquer, and they made a name for themselves there. Judges 19.47, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, 
The people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan. But a small group remains down south here uh, in this little area butted up against uh, the, the tribe of Judah, and they're looking down on this valley, this Shephelah, this fertile area that was meant to be their inheritance. And one of those communities was Zorah. And one of Zorah's residents was the man Manoah. But so this first promise to give the people of Israel their inheritance, Dan failed to trust that God could or would do what he said he would do. That he would give them the land he promised them. And thus they live looking down on what should have been theirs. And I would argue that this failure eventually breeds a resentment that uh, inflames into all of the conflicts that we'll see over the next few chapters. But let's continue on. Look at verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Our second promise, that the barren will conceive. She will bear a son. And for this woman, this is even more wonderful than simply, you're going to have a child. Right? Wrapped up in this promise is the reality that God sees her. Right? The angel comes and says, God knows that you're barren. God sees her, and this promise is to deliver her from this uh, affliction that she's experiencing. And so we see God's grace towards this woman in this moment. But look at verse 4. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So here's our third promise, only this isn't from God in this case. This is asked of this woman. God's going to give you a child, but God asks you to dedicate this child back to him. He shall be a Nazarite. So what is this whole idea of a Nazarite vow? Well, it's instituted back in Numbers chapter 6, and it was purposed to create in Israel a group of devoted spiritual leaders. It could be men or women who were filled with the Holy Spirit, similar in some ways to the class of the prophets, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament. And all of it was sort of based on this vow. And this vow had sort of two sides to it. There was the most obvious side, this reality of abstaining, of abstinence from strong drink, from contact with dead bodies, from cutting the hair. But on the flip side of that was this idea of dedication, dedication to God for what he wanted to do. And this vow was actually usually undertaken for a limited period of time. In fact, back in Numbers chapter 6, there's um, stipulations, there's instructions given for when the vow was ended, when the time was complete. And the only examples of lifelong Nazarites in the scriptures are actually Samson, Samuel, comes soon afterwards, and then John the Baptist. And some scholars suggest that these abstinence requirements, these specific, somewhat, you know, strange list of things, were actually meant to stand in for all of the differences between Israel and the Canaanite cultures that surrounded them. J.B. Payne says it this way, the grapes, for example, probably stood as a symbol for all the temptations of the settled life of Canaan. So Samson was, God called, God asked that Samson would be 
a Nazarite, this symbol of all that was meant to be different about Israel from the people around them. And we might be tempted to pity this woman or others like her in the scriptures, like Hannah, Samuel's mother, who again, who would come soon after, who miraculously conceive after years of barrenness and then are asked to promise that child back to God. That feels unfair, somehow unjust in some way. And what's even stranger is they seem to do so willingly, almost joyfully. How can that be? It feels strange. But I would argue that this is a response full of wisdom, that this is a response full of wisdom. Proverbs 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. And if that's true, and I think this wife of Manoah or Hannah or others like them in the scriptures understand this in a vivid, unmistakable way, that these children are a gift from God. And if that's true, then God has final claim on their lives. But this isn't just true for these children. It's true for all children, friends. And those of us who are parents or those of us just in this church community who have care over and, uh, you know, count ourselves as part of the discipleship journey of all these little ones up in city kids and older ones in our midst, teenagers, we're simply given stewardship over them for a period of time, but they are not ours. Paul Tripp says it this way in his book, Parenting. Good, uh, good parenting, which does what God intends it to do, begins with this radical and humbling recognition that our children don't actually belong to us. Rather, every child in every home, everywhere on the globe, belongs to the one who created him or her. Children are God's possession for his purpose. So I would argue that this woman shows a response full of wisdom, recognizing this child is a gift from God. And so I will gladly offer him back. Let's look at now at verse 6. Here we get Manoah uh, entering the story. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. But then she goes on to recount what the angel tells her. So Manoah's wife comes to him and describes this event. She says, this man of God came to me, which sometimes in the scriptures just refers to a prophet, right? But what she says afterwards suggests that she understands that this was no mere human being, right? This was a man of God who had the appearance of an angel of God, who awesome, fear-inspiring. But another thing to know, she, when she says appearance of an angel of God, she doesn't say in the Hebrew, uh, an angel of Yahweh, of the Lord. It's God, lowercase g, so while we see in Manoah's wife wisdom and this insight that this was no mere human being, there's not immediate praise of the God of Israel. However, she seems to feel like what she experienced was enough for her. Listen, this promise was made to me that I'm going to have a child. Unlike Gideon and so many others in the book of Judges, she didn't seem to need further verification she didn't go through this strange fleece ritual multiple times. And then she recounts the message to her husband. And then we'll look what happens in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. 
And then as Sonia read for us, God is gracious and, and fulfills that request, but with a sense of humor, right? We've got to know that God has a sense of humor, that the angel says, okay, I'll come back, but I'm going to appear to your wife again, because everything I said to her was true, and she told you all of it. Uh, and so then she says, hang on one second. Really, it's my husband that wants to speak with you. Uh, he's the one worried about this whole thing. So she goes, Manoah's husband is the one that needs evidence and, and verification, And then as the text goes on, beyond what Sonia read for us, verses 15 to 18, uh, Manoah continues to mistake this angel whom his wife seems to recognize was no mere human being. Manoah seems to keep taking him for that. He says, well, listen, you seem like a nice guy. Let's have dinner together. Um, The angel refuses. Manoah is confused by the refusal, asks for his name. And the man of God finally sort of cajoles or prods Manoah into making this offering to God, which Manoah and his wife eventually do. But then, as this offering is being consumed, the angel sort of is, goes up in the fire with the offering, and Manoah finally realizes, oh, this was no mere human being. Um, we've had a messenger from God, and has that same sort of panic that Gideon and others have. And then, so beautifully, uh, his wife calms him down, and reviews the facts with him. Uh, Verse 22, uh, we are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. So Manoah's wife again shows us what wisdom looks like. We're going to come back to this in just a second, but verses 24 to 25, the chapter ends And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. So while the writer of Judges does not particularly or explicitly portray this woman as righteous or as Yahweh-fearing, I do think we get a picture of wisdom in her as she approaches the promises of God, particularly when compared with her husband. Okay, so as in our last couple of minutes here, let's consider how we respond in wisdom to the promises of God. A few things. First, wisdom reminds us that God always fulfills his promises. Again, Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And so for us, whereas experience in life slowly teaches us that people around us will let us down, Thankfully, some less so than others, but people will let us down and thus can't be always fully and completely trusted. God never will. He never does. He will always fulfill his promises. The Danites failed to trust in this, but Manoah's wife seems to take this promise at face value. Again, not explicitly attributing it to Yahweh, but recognizing that this messenger was no mere human being, somehow was sent from from on high, and she's willing to take that promise. Secondly, wisdom reminds us that God's promises ought to shift our perspective. Wisdom reminds us that God's promises ought to shift our perspective. So Manoah's wife, as we said, seems willing to embrace the Nazarite vow on behalf of her son because she recognizes It's very clear, vivid, that her son was a gift from God, a result of God's grace and goodness in the first place. And friends, this is true of kids, but it's also true of our time. It's true of our finances. 
a whole host of things in our lives. To some people, tithing on a month that's really tight, you know, where the money is, things are going to be close. Tithing or being generous in a moment like that, you know, when your tithe is the first thing that comes out of your bank account, maybe, people would say that's unwise, right? Do your charity work after you know that your bills are covered. But biblical wisdom helps us to see the truth of things, that if God has always been faithful in the past, it only makes sense for us to trust him today. Next, wisdom allows us to be content without all the answers. Wisdom allows us to be content without all the answers. See, whereas Manoah grabs at answers and confirmation and clarity, his wife seems far more comfortable moving ahead with one wonderful promise from a heavenly messenger. Christopher J. Wright says in his book, The God I Don't Understand, Faith seeks understanding, and faith builds on understanding where it is granted, but faith does not finally depend on understanding. That is not to say, of course, that faith is intrinsically irrational, quite the contrary, but faith takes us into realms where explanation fails us for the present. We see that in beautiful clarity in the life of this woman. And finally, wisdom applies God's promises on the ground in everyday life. Again, we said Manoah's wife stays calm in the face of her husband's terror. We're going to be struck down. Where's the cloud? The lightning's coming. And she works out the implications of God's promises to them in that present moment. Hang on. If God accepted our offering and he made this promise that I'm going to bear a child, and that that child is going to begin to deliver Israel, then I don't think that's all going to happen if we get killed here, if we get struck down. That's not going to work out. And it's all too easy for us to do similar things to Manoah, to trust in God's promises until a real emergency pops up, right? And then we declare some sort of state of emergency where God gets sort of pushed to the margins while we figure things out ourselves. Yes, God, we still love you, but this is an emergency, and I need to figure this out. But biblical wisdom asks us to have God in the room, at the table, in the equation, as we encounter challenges in life. Some of you will have seen a video circulating online of a group of Ukrainian Christians around a table singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Here's the words of that hymn. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Let's pray now that our brothers and sisters in that part of the world would cling to God's promises and that they would be real and vivid for them even in this present moment. Let's pray. Jesus, we say quite plainly that understanding fails us in the sense you promised I will never leave you or forsake you. And yet when we look at what's happening in the world, not just in Ukraine, but all over the globe, as we see people suffering and some of them being brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we don't have full understanding of how your promises can endure, and yet we believe that they do. And so we pray that our brothers and sisters, particularly in the Ukraine and in that part of the world, would experience the truth that you will never leave us or forsake us. And would we bring your promises into everyday life, into our work, into sitting around the table at home, into our recreation on the weekend. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.